All right, good morning. I'm back, I'm back, and I'm so happy. Tennessee was lovely, thank you uh, for the vacation time. Thank you to Lisa for filling in. I am very appreciative of that. And you can't find good help, right? And she's, she's one of the best and I can trust her and I don't have to worry that, you know, things are not gonna be handled and I know that she did well. All right, I wanna start us this morning. We are entering into a very special book to me. Very, 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 very special uh, letter to Smyrna. Smyrna is ancient Izmir where I lived for three years. And um, I just get this feeling of love and just understanding of that particular community and all the things that went on. I know a little bit about the history and so forth. Things like Polycarp, who was martyred there. There was a church just down the road. I walked past it every day. You know, I attended the chapel at Izmir, Turkey, which was the Basilica to St. John, built by the Vatican. It was on loan to the military for us. And that's where we met as our, our place of worship. I know Ephesus down there, all the seven churches right within my my territory. My kids lived at, at Pamukkale, which is um, Laodicea, whether you are neither hot nor cold, because they lived in the warm bath water that, that exists there to this very day. Um, so all of these churches are really special because I relate and I understand and they're in my head real well. But nevertheless, I studied like a fiend for two days after getting back from my trip. So Saturday and Sunday, I did nothing but have my, my little self with my coffee and my water right at my computer. But I did not get to bed early enough last night. So if I start fainting on you guys, just I apologize because I, I did not go to bed till four. And no, that's like two and a half hours sleep. That's not enough. So I will be taking a nap this afternoon. <laughs> but if my brain goes, it's because of lack of sleep totally. And that's not even an excuse. That's the truth. <laughs> All right. I want to start us though, because this church is a church that's talking um, to a body of believers who in particular are are under the thumb and under the pressure of persecution, right? Y'all understand that that is what you studied this week. Um, and one of the things is uh, Jesus's presentation to us of who he is, is something I think is absolutely essential. If we do nothing else this morning, we need to focus in and key in on that major subject. What did you find the major subject to be in this book? of this, this particular, I call it a book, but it's a letter to the uh, Ephesians. If you had to say there was a contrast going on of two concepts, what was going on there? Suffering. suffering. It, and is suffering in light of suffering unto death. And then the, co the, the contrast to that is who Jesus presents himself as, who is life, right? So life versus death. That is your major contrast in this particular letter. So even though there are other subjects that kind of pop in there and other things that you're going to pick up on, because that is the major emphasis. That's where I want to try to hang tight as much as possible. And then we can always, you know, personally and privately go back and do additional work in other areas and learn about some of these uh, other mini subjects that come along. But I want to start out by just before I pray, I want to start out by reading to you out of Matthew, because I think this sets you up in your mind to be prepared to start looking at what we're going to be looking at, which is all the logistical, this is the word, this is the, this is the Hebrew, Hebrew or Greek of it, this is, the, this is the list, 
you know, and that's all very mechanical to us. But before we go into the mechanics, I think those mechanics will feel so much more tender and so much more personal to you if you're drawn in first by what God is really trying to impress, I think, upon all of us. So let me just read to you. I'm going to read. I have my Bible open this time, so I know I have the right place. This is Matthew 10, and it's starting in verse 24. And this is one of the verses that I think we looked up when we were uh, doing those like multitudes of cross-references, right, that you hardly could get through this week. Yeah, those are great. Thank you, Kristen, for being so good to us. That is, that was above and beyond the call, right? Uh, really, it would be really nice. I do that too sometimes. I just like to try to help you along some. Okay, let me start in verse 24 of chapter 10 in Matthew. He says, pardon? Chapter 10, verse 24. I'm starting there. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he, become, that he become as his teacher and the slave as his master. If they have called the head of the house, Beelzebub, how much more will the members of his household? So how much more will you and I also be attacked in that same way? If our teacher, Jesus, is attacked and called Beelzebub, the devil, right, then how much more should we not expect that we would also receive that? We who are imperfect, we who sometimes look like the Beelzebub probably in the way that we act and the things that we do, right? But Jesus even was called in that manner. So we should not be surprised of this. How much more the members of his household? Therefore, do not fear them for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. What is our book title? revelation what is that definition to unveil there we go and he says what i tell you in the darkness speak in the light and what you hear whispered in your ear proclaim among the housetops do not fear those who kill, kill the body but are unable to kill the soul but rather fear him who is able to, to destroy both soul and body in hell are not two sparrows sold for a cent and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. In other words, he is aware of it. He even watches over the tiniest little creatures of this planet. And he says, um, but the very hairs of your head are numbered. Therefore, do not fear you are of more value than many sparrows. Everyone, therefore, who shall confess me before men, I will confess him also before my father who is in heaven, but whoever shall deny me before men, I will also deny him before my father who is in heaven. So this is the, the premise. And that is that number one, you can expect that suffering is going to come. Jesus is aware of this. He knows that it is the calling, right? I mean, it, the, the scripture that says, count the cost. Does a builder who's going to build a castle not count the cost, how much he needs to have in order to accomplish that. What about a, a leader of a, of a army that's going out to war? Does he not count the cost of how many soldiers will it probably cost in lives? How much ammunition, how many tanks, how many, I'm talking current events, right? What do you need in order to go to that war and actually win it? And if you don't count the cost, then you're doomed to fail, right? You and I need to understand what the cost is. 
are you willing to pay it? Are you willing to pay it? Now I want to go into another area. Um, Hebrews 11. This is a real familiar one to all of you because this is the, the, the hall of faith, they call it. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the men of old gained approval. Whose approval? God's approval. By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous because he did it God's way. He did what God required, which was the shedding of blood, not the giving of the work of your hands, right? And he, and he says, testifying about his gifts and through faith, Though he is dead, he still speaks. To this day, Adam still speaks, or not Adam, um, Abel. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. I want to be the one that's taken up. Don't we all want the rapture to come and just take us up that we not face death? But God, and God will do that one day. We don't know who the, the blessed ones will be of that particular group, but whoever they are, they will suddenly be in the presence of the Lord with the twinkling of an eye. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Now, if you and I really take this to the, to the furthest extent, how are you going to please the father? And what does it mean to believe God? Well, in earlier in Hebrews, back in chapter four and five, believing God was equated with, the, uh, with obedience. Those who obey me are the ones who love me, right? So here we have, I mean, the scripture is loaded with this kind of exhortation, which is given to Smyrna. This is not a new concept, even though John wrote it, to this particular group in ancient time. Oh, my Bible unloaded and exploded. I've got too many notes in here. But if you and I, yes, but if you and I want to really drink in and really put into our life the things that we have looked at this week concerning Smyrna, we have to understand that number one, belief is, there's no easy beliefism. And Jesus never considered that coming into faith meant your whole world was going to be fixed and perfect and without problems. Actually, the very opposite. He said, I am going to pit mother against daughter and father against son and the children against their parents, in essence. And, there, and I did not come to bring peace, but what? A sword. What kind of a sword? the sword of the gospel of God's word. When Jesus himself comes on that white horse in Revelation 19, what comes out of his mouth? A sword. This is part of your call as a Christian. If you have been called into faith, you have been called to a understanding that you have counted the cost and you understand that your faith at times may require that you endure. And if you are so called to, you may even be called to suffer unto death. But if you have to go there, God will give you the courage, 
He will give you the means and he will also give you the way of escape at the appropriate time. All right, let's pray. Father God, we are just in awe of your word and in awe of the fact that you have loved us so much that you did not omit any, any piece of the information concerning relationship with you. Father, if, if there's nothing else that we walk away from today, we just pray that what we do is we learn to come to know you better, that we know who you are for us and in us and through us. And Father, that the power to live it out, the power to endure is right there at our fingertips. And Father, all we need to do is continually set our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Father, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. And then he sat down at the right hand of his father. Father, we pray that you just give us that ability to keep our eyes on the goal that the things that we seek for, Father, as Abraham did, not the things of this world, but a heavenly city, one built without human hands. Father, just give us that ability, give us that strength, give us that courage. Father, allow us that we might actually obey your word and that we not fear. Father, we pray you bless us this morning, bless our word. Father, let your spirit fall upon us in a mighty way. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. All right. So that was kind of a opener just to get your minds thinking on really what's going on here in this particular book before we start dissecting it. Now, what I want to do is revert just a little bit. And I want to take you into a little bit of what it is that you've been doing. For those of you who are trying to learn this method, you need to understand kind of the processes, the things that you are doing and why you're doing the steps that you're doing and how they play into the concepts of this, how to study your Bible program. Okay. So what we basically did this week on the whole, what, after we did our basic observations, finding keywords and marking them, right. Looking for contrasts and comparisons, looking for times of reference or of certain subject matters, like certain people, people, places, and events that we need to note, because those are all things that you would want to look for, maybe in other places that you have a little bit better understanding of them. Once you did that, then you hone in and you find a primary subject matter, which is what we've done this week. And what would you say was the primary subject matter? Suffering, the call to suffering, not just that you suffer and it's it blindsides you, but that you have prepared your mind and you understand it's coming. Would you say in the day that we're living in right now that you can see it's coming? It, are, are you just a little bit fearful, a little bit anxious, a little bit thinking, I don't know, Lord, what's this going to be like? What's it going to be like to live in America oh, in the, the near future, in the next 10 years? We, if in a year and a half we've come from where we were, to where we are now, can you imagine what it's going to be like in 10 years? In a way, it would be very interesting for you because you're studying the suffering church to dictate yourself some kind of a little note of what, where are you right now in the thinking of where we're going to have to go as a church? Who are we as God's people? What's going to be expected of us and what are you willing to do? How far are you willing to go in your taking a stand for 
the gospel of Christ. And make yourself a note. Who knows if you're still here in 10 years? I hope we're not. And I think maybe we won't be. But that's just, I, we've all been saying this every generation, right? We're always saying we're, it's, it's, he's coming soon. But this is why he wrote to us. He said, listen, no one knows the day nor the hour. Only the Father knows this. And it's not that Jesus doesn't know it, but that Jesus submitted to a physical body of flesh that in his submission to the Father, he would demonstrate to us a willingness to not necessarily have to know everything. You don't need to go to a prognosticator and have your fortune read, right? You don't need to know every answer down the road. What do you need to do? Trust God. Believe him. Be faithful right? Persevere in the things that you're about to do. So because we have this subject then, this is basically inductively what we have done this week. We, um, we found topical studies, right? And, and why are they done? They're done for bringing you to understanding or fuller understanding of the subject as it relates to the context in which you are in. So in other words, we see the subject is suffering. And now we're going, okay, now I need to know more thoroughly what this subject is about so that when I go back, I can take all the information that I'm going to glean. I can go back into the book of Revelation, look at the author's purpose in the book on the whole and the events that are, that are going to be revealed to us in it. And I can make an application better of the subject of suffering. Why must I endure in suffering? What is suffering's purpose, right? What will be the outcome of my enduring in it? what will be the outcome if I don't endure, right? So it's done for bringing you to understanding. You are going to break the topic into sev several word studies if necessary. When you hit a subject matter, which we did this week, such as the subject of Jesus being the firstborn of the dead, that plays into the subject of suffering because he is the, the counterbalance to our abilities. He is the source of our abilities to be able to endure in this. And so how he presents himself to us is the one who is the for, firstborn of the dead. So now you need to look at, at subject by subject, subject, both firstborn and dead, and both need to be observed, right? So that you have a better understanding. Not all of us have been doing really intensive Bible study all our lives. There are a lot of people who are in this class right now and who are online and in the evening group as well who are just now building their doctrines. They're beginning to establish what they know about who is God, who is man, what is sanctification about. We were talking about this a little bit earlier. The three verb tenses in scripture are uh, justification, sanctification, and glorification. You need to train yourself to discern those the, what what those three are so that when you approach them in scripture, you don't get confused and you start to think, oh, that looks to me like I'm earning my salvation. No, you're working out your salvation in fear and trembling. And so the firstborn of the dead and the, fir the firstborn and the, of the dead both need to be observed. Keep in mind that sometimes a word study can then lead you into another related subject. This is going to happen. And that's what happened to us this week. We looked at firstborn. What was the subsequent subject then that came up? First fruits, which Kristen did tons of work on. She said she got, that was her little rabbit that she went on and I'm so thankful because maybe she can enlighten us a little bit on that if it comes up well I won't put I won't totally put you on the spot but maybe I might 
Okay. <laughs> so you have to decide basically if this happens to you when you're doing your homework, and for all of us it does, you kind of have to stop and say, okay, does this seem to me like something that's relevant enough that I really do need to go there? That's where the trickiness of it comes in because you don't always know until you go there. So what I suggest you do as, a, as a, you know, one that's trying to instruct you in this is you dabble in it for a few minutes. You go down it, maybe you do a word study on it, and you might look at the first two or three verses that pop up because of it that's related. And see, kind of taste and see if the Lord is good, right? Is it, is it really related to what you're doing? And is it enhancing? And does it better explain to you? And in the case of first fruits, it was necessary because the subject matter is Jesus. And Jesus being the firstborn, he is the first fruits. And how does it relate to the fact of the other subject dead? What is he the first fruit of? The, those who are resurrected, the dead, right? So it does, it does tie in and you needed it. So the process is this. This is what you did in your process. It's three steps. First, you're going to identify what your subject matter is. Sometimes you simply identify it as a key word and there's your subject. Other times it's by looking at a subject like God and another subject like sovereignty or something like that comes out of it and then that becomes your subject. So here we have our subject. We, first thing you're going to do is define it from its immediate context. That's where you do those, what we call mark keywords and make a list from the text of what you learn. That's your immediate context learning. That has to be done, number one, because what rules for interpretation? The immediate context. Once you get to a place where you might have a two or three options for interpreting what you're looking at, does it mean this about Jesus? Does it mean this about Jesus? Or does it mean this about Jesus? Or maybe it means a blending of a couple of things. But you're not going to know until you do your immediate context knowing what your author's purpose is, right? And what your major theme is in your book. And then you look at these and your immediate context is going to help you to hone in on what it is that your subject matter is really all about. What subject matter does it relate to? Okay. We're looking at the revelation, the second coming. We're looking at churches right now, the letter to the churches, which are words of encouragement from Jesus to us, the believers. So that as we approach those days and the closer we get to those days, what? The more difficult this suffering that we're looking at is going to get, right? So would you say this becomes even more and more relevant as the days approach, right? And Jesus said about the church, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but what? Exhort one another all the more as you see the day approaching. Why? Because if you stop your assembling and if you stop your fellowship, you lose your connection and your support system, right? And you stop, you kind of can become fearful. So here we go. Define it from its immediate context and kind of look at all those qualities. That's the number one thing you do. The second thing we did this week was we defined it by a word study. So you did several word studies on different things. Now, when you have uh, precept curriculum, they've kind of weeded through and decided which ones they feel like are most beneficial for you. It doesn't always mean that they pick all the right ones, though. Sometimes I find that I find a word and I 
and I'm just like, oh, this is really relevant. Wow, they missed this, right? That can happen. And just think of all the work studies you could do <laughs> and how far this could go, right? But you got to define it from the immediate context, then define it by a word study, either Greek or Hebrew word study. That's how you do it. The last thing you're going to do is define your subject matter by cross-references. That one is probably the most uh, dangerous of the three because what happens when you drop into a cross-reference? You're in a whole new context. And so you have to balance it with, with at least as much as you know about my, what might be, doing, be going on in that book. But you can't stop to set a context on every book you drop into, right? So you just have to be careful and be aware that you are in a new context and draw out of it. This is where the dis disciplines of list making will be very helpful to you if you will discipline yourself about it. When you're in your cross-reference and you're trying to gain insight about a particular subject, be sure that you write directly from the text to your page what it says about that subject without adding any descriptive words of your own. Just you, you can eliminate words occasionally, and sometimes you have to work things or you know rearrange the sentence so it makes sense when you write the, li the list, but use their words onto the paper and then give yourself your uh, scripture reference sticks to it. What this is going to do then is through the three things, making a list from your immediate text, doing a word study to, to get a good background on what the original language meant, and then going into all your cross-referencing, then you're going to bring all this together and you're going to go back to the book of Revelations and drop it in. Isn't that amazing? That is what you did this week in homework. Did you realize that? You're going to find this, by the way, in chapter four of how to study. Let's see if I can find chapter four. It's right after three. It's right after three. <laughs> you are so good. Okay, so Kathleen Bird said, <laughs> okay, so it's called Search for the Meaning. And in a way, this chapter also helps you handle difficult passages. If you come across a passage and it's really crazy and you're not really sure what it means, you can use these same tools. But if you read chapter four, it is, it's going to take you right through basically what we just did. Um, you have overviewed the text so that you understand its context. Uh, now you know what it says in the immediate text. You've analyzed it. And, and now you want to know a little bit more on it, right? So how does a child of God go about making sure that he or she really knows what the word means? Let us give you some basic principles to follow when you interpret the word of God. And then we'll follow those principles with specific instructions on how to better understand and analyze the text through the word studies, understanding figures of speech, handling them properly, knowing how to deal with prophetic passages. All these will help you, so to speak, examine the soil of God's word. Okay, so then she goes on and she gives you, like, I'm not going to read them because it's going to take up too, way too much time, but I would recommend that you go and read. There's like, what is there? Seven principles. Isn't that clever? Seven principles. I didn't catch that. Um, and at the end, she concludes by saying, again, concerning 
um, the, the conclusions that you draw at the end, right? Like what we're looking at today is not going to be that difficult because it's not a controversial subject matter. It's not like speaking in tongues or something like that. It's an easy one about suffering, which is going to be pretty blatant. But it says in here, be careful once you come to your conclusions, do not contradict, contradict the book. In other words, context rules for interpretation. Do not violate the general theme of the book. Again, same thing. Uh, make sure your conclusions do not violate other biblical truths. In other words, never violate your known doctrines. So those are the two pillars, right? And then the last thing she says is, at this point, you've done enough research and enough study. You're ready to go and look at some commentaries and read what they have to say. You will have enough knowledge then to weed out the things that you know are off base and grab hold of the others. And what will probably happen on the whole, generally, you will get support, backup, confirmation to the things that you drew conclusions to. But if you don't do your work first, you can read a commentary and get taken down a up the primrose path that looks good, but is inaccurate. Okay, 101 completed. Was that helpful to any of you? So you understood what you did this week. This is what your homework was and this how you handled it. All right. Um, I forgot to set my chart up, didn't I? Okay, let's see if I can do this without falling over. I'm not tall enough to really reach this. I have two issues going on today. My medication makes me dizzy, but it does help the pain. So I, can't, I keep taking it anyway. And I can't see anything because my cataracts are so bad <laughs> that I'm blind as a bat. So if I can't read, am, am I drawing a line there? Okay, I, can't, I couldn't see it. Oh, really? Because that's exactly how tall I am. <laughs> okay, we're going to look uh, concerning this church, Smyrna. We are going to consider what their situation is. I need a tall person. Uh, yes, where are you? We're going to look at the Savior. <laughs> and we're going to look at what, the, what, what we need to know about the subject of suffering. Because primarily our major contrast, I'm going to put this right here. Our major contrast in this particular letter is death and life. If you really boil it down to the nuts and bolts, if you take away all the extra things that are in there, the major thing is about death and life. Therefore, that is the way that Jesus identifies himself. How many times have I taught that when you see Jesus identified that it's pertinent to the information that's being given at the moment, he calls himself by the name that that he wants to give to you to empower you to know your God better. That when, trust me, when you and I are in tough times, when you, you know this, when you have had a major issue hit you in your family, a horrible health issue, or someone dies, or your kids are in trouble, or, or your finances just fell through, and now you don't know what you're going to do. You do not have time at that moment of crisis to sit down and start doing your Bible study. 
when is it that you are going to equip yourself to handle these pressures so that you can handle them? When? When you're not in crisis mode. And, and unfortunately, what happens to most of us when, when it's not crisis mode? Eh, I'll get to it. I'm really busy. I got to do this. I got to do that. You put all the priorities. I remember as a young believer, one of the most vivid remembrances in my mind when I was being discipled, right, as a young, young believer in my 20s, was uh, a person, was a pastor who set a jar before himself at the, uh, he was teaching a small group. And he had this bucket of all these different things. And he said, here's the principle about how to handle your daily life with God. How are we going to get all these things in this item into this one small jar? Right? You guys have, I'm sure, done. Do you remember the days when we did visual aids so much? Or what do they call them? Object lessons, right? Those were the biggie for a while. That was like the hot tick in how to teach at that time. And so he puts... He says, so the first thing you need to understand is you have to put God into your life first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all these other things, that was his verse. All these other things shall be added to you as well or unto you as well. God will handle all the rest. God will give you time for all the rest. Your life will do fine when, if you've got the biggie in there first. So always put God in first. So he put the big rocks in there first. And then he began to talk about other things that can come in your life. Then you add this. Then, Well, the sand was the last thing to go into the the pot and when he was done this huge bucket over here was completely emptied and all of it was in this one little jar it was a, a life-changing visual aid for me you and I need to know that right now is when we are training because we are so close to the end we know this we can sense it as the believers there is something pressing and moving very fast right now in our history and in our world and it's a it's a little bit intimidating but this is when we need to be pressing in to learn this because although I believe that we the believers will be brought out of this I believe that we will be raptured out but boy we need to know these things that we can teach them to others how can we begin to explain the urgency of accepting Jesus Christ yes that's really good too Although I like it better when God shouts, but usually the shouting is after I've done something wrong. Right? I remember seeing a billboard one time that, that said, uh, don't make me come down there, God. <laughs> yeah. I love it. I just, and I saw, I don't know if you saw it, but on my Facebook page, I took a picture of a little, uh, one of those little blocks that you paint messages on. And it said, I saw that. God. <laughs> I loved it. It was so good. Okay. All right. But this, this is the point. You and I, Jesus says you have to count the cost. You have to do that before the crisis comes. You certainly have to do that before you enter into relationship with God. We have all counted the cost, obviously. Now, I don't know that we all totally understand that sometimes until we're already into it, but God knows where he's going to take us and he will train you up as you go along. You may have started out being told, just trust God and it's all going to be great. But once you got into it, you pretty quickly found out that, you know what, life still happens and tough things still occur and I'm not exempt from life and, and, and troubles and health issues and all the others, right? And as we approach the days of Jesus' coming, 
I believe we're going to look more and more like the early church, the persecutions that came against the early church. We will have to be prepared. So this is the time to prepare. The first thing you need to do is know who your God is. So let's, um, let's start about their situation. What was going on in, in the church of uh, Smyrna? We're in chapter 2, verses 8. He says, I know your tribulations. And what's going to happen? Tribulations is where is where they were at. Oh, I forgot to put the word warning. So this is their warning. Right? Tribulations. I know. I love this. I know. Who is it that knows? Jesus knows. Jesus knows. God knows. If you want to just keep going, right? I know about your tribulations. And then he goes on to say about that, what? And you will have, and there will, do not fear them and you will have to, did he, did he let us know that there is a limitation to things? Very interesting. Now we know that 10 days is a symbolic statement, correct? Because, because why? How do we know for sure that it's actually symbolic and not literal in the moment? Who is the letter to and who does it apply to? Only to those who were living at the time the letter came out? No. It's, it's a letter written for all generations, for all churches, for all those who are believers, correct? We've established that already back in our earlier studies. So if we know it's to all believers and it's to every generation progressively as the ages pass, we can know for sure that when he says, you will have tribulation for 10 days, and he, and he goes on to say, um, but be faithful. And yes. And why is it, why are they going to have their tribulation? The devil, because of the devil. So the warning is Jesus knows. He says, I know. And he also says, you will have tribulation 10 days. Now that's a symbolic because it's prophetic utterance. Now, what was that reference? That's in 2, uh, 8, 10. Okay, 2, 10. All right. And then he says, um, the devil is about to do what? Is about to cast some of you into prison. There you go. Why? So that, I love those so that verses, if you don't highlight them, but those are important, so that you will be tested. Now, be tested by who? Well, that, let's think that through a little bit. Who has the power to do what? When the devil wants to test you, what must he do? He must ask for permission. When you, when you move into books like James, and it talks about what testing is all about. We looked at that, right? Wasn't it James 2 that we looked at, right? In your homework? I know so many cross-references. There were a lot of them. But he talked about te testing, and he said, concerning testing, what is its purpose? 
Let me see if I can find my, see if we can find our list on this. I do recall it. Right. To strengthen your faith. That's exactly, and actually this is exactly, what, I think it's the last day. I think it's day five. Okay, very good. Can you, can somebody look that up? And yeah, I found it now. James 1, 2 to 4. Does anybody have that or shall I read it? Okay, so if the purpose of a test is that you be perfected and that you be lacking nothing, that you be perfect. See, I've always said I'm practically perfect, like Mary Poppins. <laughs> Not perfect, just practically perfect. But Jesus literally says you're, you are to consider those trials as a joy. That's hard to do. I got I to confess. So that's, especially when you're in it. Now, later, it's, sometimes it's easier. Looking back at it, you're like, you know, it's a good thing that happened because, right? But at the time, it's tough. But he's saying consider these, these various trials as a joy, knowing that they are going to uh, test your faith to produce what? Endurance. And what is the one thing that he keeps saying to us as we've studied the subject matter of these trials and testings and sufferings is to what? Endure in them. Endure to the end. Why? What happens? You're strengthened. You're perfected, right? You're made complete. You're lacking in nothing. Really, what it's saying is your faith in God is what is being strengthened. Not that you're being strengthened for some personal gain, but that, you're, that your faith is being strengthened so that you rely more and more. One of the cross-references uh, that we were taken to was in the Old Testament. It was about a king that was selected to replace another king and how he was going to be established and how he was going to um, bring honor to his family name and so forth. Do you remember that verse? I know we, we ought to look them all up, but it's going to be tough to find every one of them. Is that Isaiah? Yeah, read that for us, Kristen. <laughs> Good luck. And I will clothe you uh, with your tunic and tie your sash securely about him. I will entrust him with your authority, and he will become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no when he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. I will drive him like a peg in a firm place. He will become a throne of glory to his father's house. Isn't that amazing? Now, what's really interesting is, again, out of context, if you keep reading on that, the end result is that God is going to literally destroy him and his house because what did, they, what did Israel begin to do? Who, who are they putting their faith in? The kings, right? Their leaders. They weren't putting their faith and trust in God. They weren't being obedient to God. But these, these different kings were coming up, and most of the kings were leading people astray. So the end result, when, you, when, you, when I looked at the totality, I looked again. I looked for the context of it to see what it was all about. What was going on there was Judah, the, or, um, Israel, the nation, was waning away from God, and the leaders were not leading well. And so in the end, what did happen to Israel? 
they were, they were evicted off the land. God brought these houses down. When we did our kings and prophets study, that's the one thing that we kept looking. Some of them did right in the eyes of the Lord. That was good. But there weren't very many of them. But then there were a lot who did what? Evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so in that instance, what we're seeing, though, is um, God chooses people to put them in there. Sometimes you lose your eyes off of God and get them on men. Then trials come, and what does a trial do? Whoop, eyes back on Jesus, right? This is what Israel did. Remember the, cir the circular work of Israel? They would fall away from God. God had sent them a prophet. Then he'd send them problems, and then their eyes would be turned back to God, and then they would be walking with God, and then they fall away. And then, Okay, this is what God is saying, though, about trials. Did you understand that in your homework? That What we're seeing is... These things do, they do perfect us, but they perfect us through what? Suffering. And how did Jesus even come to be perfected? Not that he needed the kind of perfecting we need, but that it was the concept of being perfected because of what? Obedience to God. Keeping eyes upon on God the Father, in his case, who pled out, Father, remove this cup from me if it be... If, if it's a possible, but if not, I want to do your will. Let your will be done, right? So here we've got the devil. He's throwing them into these testings. The devil is coming. Be absolutely assured you and I are going to have testing. Even if we aren't talking about end times, on a daily basis, every one of us encounter some kind of a testing in our life daily. How are we going to respond to it? Understand the devil comes after you. He's going to test you to trip you up. But what is God's design in it? To prove you. Right. Isn't that awesome? And ultimately, although the devil is the one who comes in as the deceiver and the tempter, but who allows it? The Lord does. God does. And if you understand that about your God... How do you view the world and the enemies that come at you now? Just by that little bit of conversation. And if, if it's your sovereign God, your God, he's allowing that issue in your life, bad health, bad finances, marriage issues. You got a great husband, though, so you never have marriage issues. But when we have any of those common issues, not to mention the, these persecutions, these literal Christian persecutions that are going to come. And don't conflate the two. There's, there's, the, there's the daily mundane issues that come against it, but that is not necessarily Christian persecution. That is life, right? But still, in either case, they can be a test. They can test your faith. And when you're going through those, now that you know it's your sovereign God who says you will be tested, and you'll be tested for what? Ten days. There's a limit to it, and who sets the limit? God. How do you feel about that? Have you counted the cost? Have you said, yes, Lord, if this is your will in my life, and if I, if I am successful in this, it will be to your glory? That is what God is aiming us for, each of us, generation by generation by generation. Think of all the years.
people thought the Lord was coming tomorrow. Very soon. <laughs> soon and very soon. All right. The devil is about to cast some of you into to prison. So this is their situation. And he says, concerning tribulation, let's look at that word tribulation. It was number 2347. And what is what specifically are the possibilities for words in that? Persecution is definitely one. Affliction. Affliction. I thought that was interesting. Oppressing. Um, you know what? I sure wish. Um, was her name Yinyan that was with us at one time? Do you remember her? Yinyan? She was a little oriental lady. Mm -hmm. Okay. She's passed now, but I remember her talking about in the, in their language, in, in her Chinese, I guess it was language that the word to press or the word, uh, maybe it wasn't persecution, might've been suffering that in the way it breaks down, it's oppressing together. I thought that was very interesting. Right. Yes. Yeah. But to press has to do with squeeze and the outcome is what you're looking for. What comes out when you, when I press you, what's coming out of you? Pardon? Yes. Yeah. And is, is the, the pressing bringing out of you, the qualities of the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, or is coming out of you bitterness and anger, frustration, rejection, even unbelief, a walking away from God and God's people because you're fed up and those people are horrible because they're people, <laughs> right? Yeah, I have one definition that emphasizes the crushing that's you go that's exactly what i'm talking about and i also so when jesus comes he says he comes to do what to tread what the grapes of wrath again it's oppressing and what's going to come out will determine where you end up No, it does not. Outward difficulties. Yes. Also is used for emotional stress and sorrows which weigh down yes. the spirit like the sorrows and burdens of his heart. Um, it also includes the disappointments which can, quote, crush the light out of the one who is a Think of how many times Paul wrote letters and said, I am, I am feeling pressed or I am feeling burdened or I am concerned about how you're standing or not standing. Are you enduring? Are you, are you following through? Was my work in vain or was it for good uh, produce in you? Was there a fruit or a bearing of fruit in your lives that was righteousness and holiness and goodness? Are you my 
church that I planted, are you remaining faithful? And this is what Paul was constantly writing back to the churches concerning. You also see, for instance, even in Timothy, where he's talking about to Timothy about the he's at he's at the end of his life and he is trying to literally press into him because he knows what's coming down the road. There will be wolves who will come in among you and try to pervert the the ways. Now these are I would not call minor inconveniences. I would call these danger. You know, danger, danger, Will Robinson, right? You need to have your robot come in. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Because we, yeah, that's good. I thought of it. I was the one that said it. That's my fault. This is, I think of movies all the time. I usually Walt Disney's, but still. <laughs> this is, this is, um, I think, the spiritual message behind the, just kind of the outward activities that are going on or the, the situation in which they found themselves in. And when he says the devil is coming against him, that part was very interesting. He says, um, in your tribulation, your poverty, he says, but, but although you have poverty, so poverty is one of their issues. Let's put that up here. Their poverty. But he says, yet you're what? Yet you're rich. Now, how do you perceive that to be? What is the message in that? How are they rich if they're poor? Spiritual. So it's saying even if you have physical um, uh, depraved, if you're, if you're deprived of having even the basics, don't, don't think that you are not rich. And I love that this really kind of lines up with the letter to the Ephesians, which was our last letter. But he says, you have been blessed in him to walk in him. And so the spiritual blessings, he says, that's what he's looking at. And obviously he considers those of higher value and of more importance uh, to the believer. But he says, and the blasphemy by which those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So when he speaks about the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, who is he literally speaking of? Well, yeah, but in, in the flesh, who is he speaking of? There's the spiritual realm of Satan. But who in the flesh is coming against them that's going to put them into prison? The Jews who call themselves Jews, but they are not. They are a synagogue of Satan. What, what's going on there? Someone explain that to me. How are you not a Jew if you claim to be a Jew? Okay, a true Jew, in other passages that we've looked at in other studies, it says that those who are truly a Jew or a, or a son of Abraham are those who have what? The faith of Abraham. So if you have the faith of Abraham, then you're also being obedient to the word of God. And it's those who are being obedient to the word of God who are truly the Jews, right? That's how Jesus perceives it. Very, very interesting. I just, I have a link. I'll send it on with my chart later. Um, uh, Amir Safadi out of Israel, right? He did, he interviewed with uh, Jack Hibbs and they had a conversation. No, it wasn't Jack Hibbs. It was another guy. I don't know who he was, but they interviewed back and forth and they were talking about how do you define a true Jew from biblical perspective? was really good. And so I'll send that out to you guys to just to listen to if you're curious. But it fell right in line with this. I mean, it was one of those God moments again. Every week God does this for me. But 
but the conversation is who is really a Jew and what is even the Christian world, Christendom trying to do to pollute that message of who is a true Jew? And what did Jesus say to the Jews when he was in his ministry? You brood of vipers, right? You, you sons of hell, right? And you're trying to make others, uh, your father is the devil, right? And so why? Because they were not believing what? That Jesus was the Christ that God had promised. The seed had been promised. He was fulfilling all of the prophetic utterances about the coming Messiah. And yet they were just walking around like this saying, no, no, no. Yes. Right. 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 So the message in all of this goes back to Jesus viewing people not from titles or perspectives that necessarily we put on things. They, in this day even, this is early in the church history, right? They, Jesus is speaking through prophetic or through a spiritual utterance to John, right? Through vision. And he's telling him they are calling themselves Jew, but they're not. They're a synagogue of Satan. Because if they were Jews, if they were Abraham's children, they would believe me. They would believe the one that I am the one who God sent, right? That I am the seed of Abraham that was promised. Right. So there's there's both sides of it exactly, and that is what the Safari in, interview was about. Was talking about people who who are true Jews today. Well, they're the Christians who believe Jesus. You and I would be considered what a true Jew. Because you are a child. Isn't that cool to know? I never even thought of it. But we are the children of Abraham if we believe as Abraham believed. And we are literally, because we are in the fulfillment of the Old Testament and of the chosen people, we are now a chosen people, a holy nation, right? As Peter tells us. So this is what that interview was about. And it was just, it was very interesting at I'll send it on to you so you can watch it. So, okay, so he's saying about this, you're, who is it that's coming against him? The Jews call themselves Jews. But are not. Now that's God saying that, not me, right? That's not you and I making that determination. This is God telling us they are not. Okay, so and what verse was that? Um, nine. Okay, nine. And this was 10 up here, and this was also, I think, 10. Okay. All right, so now, why will persecution come to the believer? That's right. We looked at that in John 15, 18. I'm, let's look at those references. Why? Why uh, tribulations? The first one is in um, 
John 15, they persecuted Jesus, right? And this kind of goes back with the opening that I read to you, right, in Matthew and then in Hebrews 18 to 21. When you follow Christ, right, and you bear his name, just the fact that you walk into a room and you have a cross on your neck, what, what is the potential? Persecution. There could be people who simply don't like Christians. And immediately you sit down among them or you shop next to them or you come to their counter. They turn their nose up. They are, they are in, almost enraged. And you've done nothing. Boy, is that ever a, a big shout out, right? That this is spiritual warfare going on. Is you? Can you share something? So this week, this came at the perfect time. This whole thing about suffering, and because that's yeah, what Kaylee agreed to this because there's some fallout from her friends for her Christian beliefs, like ostracized. Yep. Wow. She is like poor, poor Kaylee. I went through this with my daughter when she was still in high school, but it was, I gave her some great verses, but what is, so what happened? So when, when we went, we sat down and I was like, I'm just going to read you some stuff. You don't have to say anything. I just want you to listen. And we went through the part about where Jesus said, you know, the world hated me. They're going to hate you. And the Good for you. Excellent. Read it. And she's like, that doesn't make me feel better. I'm like, well, I didn't expect it to make you feel better, but just understand. Oh, interesting. They're going to stand on this faith. This is going to happen. I said, and unfortunately for you, you're a teenager, and the world is so very different with what's acceptable and all of these things than it was when I was a teenager. I said, so I Ooh. don't kind of go through the same thing because I'm an adult now. And if you don't want to be my friend, whatever. Moving on. <laughs> but I'm an adult. I went through that as a teenager, but she is right in the crux, and she's just... And she's in that transitional between being a, a child and an adult. I went through the very same thing with my daughter, and I gave her those verses, and they did encourage her. She she looked at she said, I've never heard this before. I thought, how'd you miss that all the years we were in church together? But the best, the ones that were when you fear suffering kind of helped more because she kind we're supposed to want to be like Peter, where we dance around and go, woohoo, look at me, I got flogged, I'm happy, because, you know, Jesus did it, it happened to my Lord, so I'm worthy. Yeah. What did it, what, what did it say in 2 Timothy 3.12 about that? Yeah, all those who desire to live godly will be persecuted. So you can just, you can bank on it. Again, we're back to count the cost, right? You just have to know up front when you're going to enter into covenant relationship with a covenant partner who is righteous and holy, and he wants you to live righteous and holy. This is going to rub the devil and all those who are in his family the wrong way. And not all of them, but many of them will almost instantaneously, as Kristen just displayed to us, they will instantly be put off and be rubbed the other. Why do you think that's true? Why are they instantly angry with you and instantly they're not going to be your friend anymore and you're a Jesus freak and you're too judgmental and you're such a goody two-shoes and... Okay, they don't have understanding. 
There you go, Kathy. Conviction. The Holy Spirit says he will convict the world of sin and unrighteousness. And I can't remember the whole right judgment. Thank you. That's the one I was thinking of. Yeah. So if that is, if that happens, you can absolutely be assured that your very presence is a work of God in their life. Isn't that cool to know? In a way, you can tell that to her. Say, look, the fact that they're feeling this way means they're being convicted. Your presence might push them in the right direction toward God. It may not, but it might. If nothing else, they may think back on later how they bat badly they treated her and they will feel bad about it. Maybe that'll be something later that'll bring them. I mean, it, it, God's, I don't know about you guys, but my pro the progression in my walk toward God, coming ultimately coming to bow my knee before him and accept him as Savior, was a process. It was a process of many kinds of experiences as a young girl, teenager, even as a young married wife, even for a period of time thinking that I was saved because I had attended church all my life, right? But the process, all those little pieces of it, just know that even if they hate you, just know that everyone is going to ha have persecution of, to some degree. There's going to be afflictions and discomfort. Now, this is very interesting, though. This takes us to the subject of, of Izmir itself. Izmir, the, the, the name of Izmir itself, is the, is the root of that word is myrrh. Did you know that? I brought some myrrh with me today. And I can pass it around so that all of you can have a little sniff because it's really fun. This came with me. I've had this piece of myrrh probably 35 years maybe. I've, I bought it back when we were in Turkey the first time. And I've, I've held on to it. But uh, Smyrna is known as the suffering church. We now know that, right? The, what kind of sufferings have you know historically about that have occurred in, in uh, Izmir or in Smyrna? The sufferings of this immediate church that we're reading about right now, right? Yes. What did you learn about Polycarp? Yes. Very good. There we go. Right. Because they burn incense to the Roman. To Caesar. Empire. Right. That's exactly right. And uh, he said, you know, you, you threatened this fire to burn for a season, and after a while it was quenched. But you were ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment. Wow. That's really, that is so impressive, is, is it not? Polycarp, who literally says, I will not deny my Savior who has basically been so good to me. I'm sorry, I, I, when I hit that, I know that makes a noise for them. I try not to do that. Um, but he, he literally said, how can I deny the Savior who has died for me, right? And he literally went straight into the concept of, this is temporal. I am not going to deny something if I can go into eternity and burn forever. I am going... Yeah. 
let me read for let me read for the tape so they can hear it really clearly. Polycarp answered the pro council when they urged him, saying, "Swear, and I will release thee if they if he would swear to Caesar and give allegiance to him as God." And Polycarp answered, "Eighty and six years I have served him, and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who hath saved me?" And the proconsul again urged him, swear by the fortune of Caesar. And Polycarp replied, since you still vainly strive to make me swear by the fortune of Caesar, as you express it, affecting ignorance of my real character, hear me frankly, <laughs> declaring what I am. I am a Christian. Isn't that awesome? I am a, a little Christ. I'm a Christ follower. And if you desire to learn the Christian doctrine, assign me a day and I will, I will allow you to hear it. Can you imagine? Hey, if you want to know about Christianity, I'll tell you. Hereupon the proconsul said, I have wild beasts and I will expose you to them unless you repent. Call for them, replied Polycarp, for repentance with us is a wicked thing if it be a change from the better to the worse but a good thing if it is a change from evil to good. So you, you can repent and come to know God, but do not ask me to repent of good and to then join you in evil, right? I will tame, uh, I will tame thee with fire, said the proconsul, since you despise the wild beasts, unless you repent. So he went to an even worse death from the beasts, which would be more quick, I would imagine, to fire, which is horrible then polycarp you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour it and it is soon extinguished but the fire of the fortune of the future judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly you are ignorant of <laughs> but why do you delay do whatever you please <laughs> and the proconsul sent the herald to proclaim thrice in the middle of the stadium polycarp hath confessed himself a christian which words were no sooner spoken but the whole multitude both of jews and gentiles so this is still again the jews and the gentiles in the, in the um, city, dwelling there at Smyrna, with outrageous fury shouted aloud, this is the doctor of Asia, the father of the Christians, and the subverter of our gods, who hath taught many not to sacrifice nor adore. Wow, that's a testimony of your faith. They now called on Philip uh, to let loose a lion against Polycarp, but he refused, alleging, alleging, that he had closed his exhibition. So obviously this man did not want to go along with it. They then unanimously shouted that he should be burnt alive for his vision must needs be accomplished. The vision which he had, which he was praying. And earlier in the, in the write-up, there's a story of him having a vision that he would be uh, burned uh, as a martyr. And so he's, that's what he sees at this point. The people immediately gathered wood and other dry matter from the workshops and baths in which service the Jews with their unusual malice were particularly forward to help. I love the phrasing of these words, very King James-ish. When they would have fastened him to the stake, he said, leave me, I am, for he who giveth me strength to sustain the fire will enable me also without your securing me with nails to remain without flinching on the pile upon which they bound him without nailing him. So he said thus, O father, I bless thee that thou hast counted me worthy to receive my portion among the martyrs. Now, this book, Fox's 
books of martyrs. I mean, there's a bunch of them in here, and many of many of them are in that uh, Asia Minor area of the world. And it, uh, this one actually goes on, and it talks about the ten days of suffering, and it gives three periods of different Caesars that could be, a, you know, a, as a, at least a part of a symbolic gesture to this statement of for ten days, and they said it's for ten periods under. So there was. Diocletian, and then I can't remember Tertullian who followed, and then there was all these different uh, Caesars. Who some of them were kind of nice, but many of them were very harsh toward the Christian during that Roman era. All right, that smear that I sent around, I have a little picture here for those who are who might want to take a look at it. It just shows you the myrrh bush. This was really cool because when I was living in Turkey in Izmir. Um, I found out that the root word for Smyrna meant myrrh. And I was just like, oh my gosh, that is so cool. Because talk about tie in with all the scriptures and the, the subject of the suffering church, the very name of the city, its root is means myrrh. I used to have a book by um, Israel, My Glory, that was about each of the seven churches. And one of them was on Smyrna. And they went into great detail about this. But what I come to understand and what I remember is uh, Izmir has been moved a little bit in over the years. At one point it was completely destroyed and then rebuilt by Alexander the Great. But in its early years, it was set along a, a hillside and all of its hills were myrrh bushes. One of my friends, Susanna Omach, who, who is married to a Turkish believer, she told me that she remembers as a younger woman picnicking uh, up into the in the mountain areas and that these myrrh bushes were there and that, that she found them fascinating also for the same reason she had made that connection and so i went around i was really trying to solidify my understanding that the root of it was actually myrrh because i didn't understand that part I went by happenstance to a party. I mean, I have no reason to have known this person or gone, but I got invited and I went. There was a woman there who was, let me, her doctorate was in, is it called etymology? Is the word origins. And I told her the word and I asked her what she thought of it. And she said, oh yeah, that is what it means. It's myrrh. These would be this word and that word. And she went on and explained more. And I got so excited. Then I came across the magazine article. And so the whole story is, in the end, I decided to go shopping for the myrrh, you know, in the market. And I found the myrrh that is still sold there in Turkey to this day. They still use it for embalming, but they also use it for medicinal for stomach issues and other things, and they use it for perfume. So it's still around and widely used, but it's very, it was very interesting, I thought. So, oh yeah, that one is very strong, yes. That would, they, well, this is, you know, in, in that culture too, they would buy gifts uh, and beginning at birth, you would uh, be given things like myrrh to prepare for your burial. It's very Jewish also. The Jews do this as well. And so myrrh, because the, the incense of it, the smell lasts forever, right? Yeah. And I love it. The idea, what is the verse about that speaks about Christ and that his death is a sweet aroma unto the Lord? And I thought, you know, this is, this is the picture. Although suffering is not fun, but suffering produces something that's so beautiful before the Lord. It is an aroma unto God that he, 
he breathes it in with delight, just as we pass that around and you smell of it and you just go, it is such a pleasant smell. If before, I can't smell now, but before the sinus surgeries, I could smell, but it smelled like kind of like vanilla to me, a vanilla scent. It was so lovely. I loved it. Yes, that's exactly when he was born. Uh huh. That's exactly right. And the, the storyline of them bringing that, that would have been a traditional kind of gift to give a newborn because they begin preparing for burial at birth. That is their tradition. Okay. All right. So the martyr of Polycarp in, Smyr in Smyrna was one thing. There was another thing that happened that you're not aware of. I'm, I'm kind of going down this path because I just think these martyrdoms and the, the significance of what God spoke to this church and how often this kind of thing was repeated in that particular city over and over through history. It's like it never ended. There's a book here. I happen to have a copy of it. It's called Smyrna 1922, and it's the genocide of the Armenian Christians in the, in the quarter there of, of uh, Izmir, right there, just down the block from where I was. I would have been in the midst of that and dad. I'm not going to go into a lot of details on this because it's pretty gory. I mean, the, 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 um, I think it was over five, over 50,000. Let me remember 5,000 or 50. Hold on. I've got it written down here. Um, 50,000 Armenian Christians were martyred. There's a record of this. And my husband and I went to the, to the, Anglican church and met with a pastor on this one area where there's a square with a roundabout and it's near the park at a Turk park. And he was out there and he was saying in their records, their church records, it says that Christians were beheaded. That record is kept right there at the Anglican church. And it states in that in the site of the American embassy that workers uh, blood flowed as a stream out of the square and down the street. It made me think of what's going to happen with the blood and the horses and up to, yeah. But that was in 1922 with the Armenian, and it's almost all but but wiped out of history in Turkey. They, I almost started an international uh, incident when I went to a, a, a what they call a lawn party. It was for the Queen um, because we had. Um, um, international representation. And my husband was a commander there or de deputy commander. And so we went to this party. I had been reading this book. I was just putting together the Smyrna stuff in this book. And I, I was just, you know, drinking it all in. I wasn't teaching. So I was telling everyone because I couldn't teach yet. I wasn't teaching at the time. <laughs> but I got to a party and started talking about this book and started asking the questions. And this one young military man who was like the general's person, came up to me, ma'am, ma'am, please don't talk about that. And then he went over and talked to my husband. My husband's like pinching me. Shh, shh. I'm like, what? I didn't get it. I had no idea. But what it turns out was, of course, I shut up. But And I did not start an incident, but I could have. Turns out this information is stuff they're trying to hide because it's, it's shameful to them. They did do it. But this is really interesting. On page 235 of this book, there's a statement in there about the ethic cleansing of Smyrna in 1922, it was quoted with admiration and as a justification by Adolf Hitler when he was about to announce to this, this, 
solution of the Jews. And he then committed his act of genocide against the Jews. This was a precursor. Do you know what he said about it? People do not remember it. They've been able to hide it. It means nothing now. It's just a bump in the road. And that's what he thought the, the Jewish Holocaust would be like, that they would, that he would commit this act of genocide. People would just overlook it because the Jews are just a, they're pests on the earth, right? That's how he viewed them. And so he's in, in this book at the closing, he says, let me just read this one little piece on it. I think it's all fits so beautifully with what we're looking at. He says, so uh, the survivors of the Smyrna fire have the advantage of a more profound insight those interviewed did not fail to emphasize that in the midst of a Holocaust provoked by hatred and abetted by greed, each owned his or her life to an act of compassion and courage. In other words, there were many who got set free or protected by, because they were hidden by people who were compassionate also. So there, there is both sides of that coin going on at the same time, and there always has been, right? In so doing, uh, they acknowledged the ambiguities which others reject in an age that both tempts and defies easy solutions. The course of history, because they're hiding it, they're trying to, to destroy the, this history in, in the, the records in Turkey, they don't talk about it, they cover it up. The course of history since 1922 suggests that the ultimate victims may be those who delude themselves. So Hitler saying they're hiding it, Many people have deluded themselves. Oh, it never happened. How many times have we heard people who are deniers of the Holocaust? Oh, it just never happened. So he, he says here really the biggest, the biggest victims may be those who delude themselves. That was the, the concluding verse of, of this book. But these, this book is filled with eyewitness accounts. And that's what this particular woman did. She went back and she found newspaper articles written at the immediate time. She found letters of correspondence back and forth between people. And she interviewed people that she figured out were survivors. Once she found them, she'd track them down and interview those who were still living. So this, like the Bible, is an eyewitness account. This is an eyewitness account of this time frame in history. Very interesting, yes? How far? Okay, 30 minutes. Now we're ready to move on. That was their situation. So we see that through his name. And before that, there was John who was persecuted. Before John were all the other apostles who were killed in that era, not necessarily in Izmir or Smyrna, but um, many were in that vicinity of Asia Minor in, that, in the immediate area. So that was it. it what were the instructions? Yeah. Do not fear and be faithful, right? Do not fear what you are about to suffer. That's in verse 10. And then he says, be faithful. Because here's the thing. Do you remember Job's troubles? What did Job say about to his friends who said, oh, just curse God and die? There you go. And that was one of our verses we looked at. Shall we accept good from God, but then not accept the adversity? When we enter into covenant relationship with God Almighty for the salvation, the eternal salvation of your soul, have you counted the cost? Do you understand there may be trials along the way? Some of ours are not actually persecutions for faith. 
They're just the daily routine issues we deal with. But what about the day when real persecution starts to come our way? And it's coming. As these days approach, it's coming. And we need to be ready and prepared. And we need to prepare those who may have to endure in it because they haven't yet accepted Christ and they're not necessarily believing it all, right? Be faithful unto death. If God takes you there, he may not require that of you, right? I'm going to put Matthew also 10, uh, 28 to 38, or 39 maybe, 39, as an extra one to look at as well. But these are all in uh, 10 to, or in 210 rather. Okay, so that's the situation. Now let's talk about um, who God is. Know your God. This is, in, you must know your God because that's what's your rock. That is your rock. That is the thing that is going to uh, carry you through. And Jesus identifies himself how? Okay, he says he is the first and the last. What did you learn about that? Anything? Did anybody look at that particular portion? Did you do word studies or anything on that first and last? I, don't, I know it probably wasn't in the homework, right? Okay, you know what this reminds me of so we can whip through this pretty quickly. Remember a couple weeks ago when we talked about the one who is, who was, and who is to come, and Kristen gave us this great bigger picture, and I went back and looked at it, and it was exactly, I had just missed it. I had, I guess I whipped through it too quickly. when do, I thought I knew what it meant, so I was just in a hurry, right? That can happen because we have so much home, homework. But in that, remember, he was saying that it was, um, that, that statement was the I am statement that the first two portions of it, him which is and which was, is, a, is the first clause or the first portion of that statement clause, right? And that uh, is a paraphrase of the unspeakable name of God, the I am, the self-existing one, right? And then who was is that which was from the beginning. And so then we looked at 1 John, for instance, where even Jesus, who says he, he is God, he was with God in the beginning, he's the word, right? And he's the word that became flesh. So, um, and it's a counterbalance. And even in the title, the one who is, who was, who is to come, you actually get the triune God, right? So then you get to begin to see how that, title can be either Jesus or God, depending on what, who is being spoken of in the moment. That's why we know when it's repeated again at the bottom, we've already switched over to Jesus and we're still speaking about Jesus. So the first time it's used, it's God. The second time it's Jesus. And they apply to both. The one who is and who was represents more, most specifically the I am. And then the second part, the one who is to come is Jesus, right? All right. So when you consider that, that falls in line. He is the what? First and the last. There was another title. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Again, these all three of these titles, it's all interesting to me that it's almost like a repeated message. It's like subliminal. Are you getting it, right? What do you need to know about God that he is the first and the last? What is it saying to us? He's the existent one, the self-existent one, life 
exists within him and he is life, right? And because he's the first, if you're looking at the word first, what is what it comes to your mind? Chief, principal, the first, literally the first in a sequence of order, right? But also of superiority, right? Um, so the I am, the, and also the eternal God. There's a scripture, um, there's two scriptures I want to take you to. Let's do Isaiah 44, 6, though, because this one is so good. I want you to see it. Because it takes that title again of the first of the, the first and the last, and I think it expounds on it. Isaiah 48, 12 also. I think it might be the 4812 that I was looking for. Someone look up 4812 and someone else look up 446. Have you got has somebody got one of those two? Okay, tell me what six says. Okay, so in, in this one it says, besides me, there is no God. I love that. Because if you think of that as the first and the last, that means the, the superiority, the supremacy, but it's also that he is the, the one that did exist as opposed to the others that did not. There is no God besides me. Right, the create. Okay, and then what do you see in forty-eight twelve? Okay. Okay. So he is the redeemer, and the what? The redeemer, the first and the last. So meaning the one who has the power over it, the one who has. Um, the sovereignty in it. I mean, golly, think of all the ways that you can develop this in your thinking. The self-existent one, the I am, the eternal God. And, and Deuteronomy 3240, there's one more. Let's do that one too. 3240, who's got that? Deuteronomy. Okay, thank you. Yeah, re, I'm sorry, read it again then, okay? As I live forever. So he, probably in another translation, it says, and I am the eternal God, right? He is eternal. Lives forever. So if you consider then that in, that in him is life, that he is life, right? He's the I am. And so he's the self-existent one. He is the one who has life, possesses life, and is life. And therefore, and he lives forever. He is the redeemer, therefore, for you and I. And besides him, there is no God. He is the first and the last. Wow, that's powerful information. Right there, you can stand on that one because if persecution comes your way, if real tragedy comes your way and your life is put to the test, you can stand there and say, just as Polycarp did, I know who my redeemer is and I shall not deny him who has saved me. I won't give away my eternal place of comfort for a place of burning hell forever. 
you can, you can burn this physical body, but I will not spend eternity in hell burning by denying my Christ or my Savior. Okay, so he is the first and the last. He was dead. What is that alluding to? The cross, right? This, the picture in that is that, that is the cross. So that was in 2.8. Um, he physically experienced death. Now that's where that, that Smyrna comes in and myrrh and the tree resin that's used to this very day for those purposes of anointing the body and embalming it and preparing it for death. So these are people who understood their, their home city, their hometown name reminded them daily of the of the concept of death and death's always that basically the thing that you know is is going to come for everyone um it says he has come to life i love that it says and right he has come to life so what is that the resurrection Uh, that's also in 2.8, so I'll just leave that there. Now, how can we have some, such confidence to be faithful until death? What did we see that encourages and emboldens us to walk in that way? We did a whole bunch of cross-references on day um, four and five. This page 30 and 30 to 33. What did he promise for us? This is our God, our Savior. What do we know? Yeah, that he is, he was dead and he has come to life, that he has resurrected. And there, therefore, he says about himself that he is the, the first fruit, right? What did you learn? What, what does that mean for us? Right. And there's one that says about the order, Jesus... done with all these believe it or not we we've made good progress here guys I, I had so much as we had so much homework it was almost insane and don't you know it's the week I was gone and so in my I I can hardly see my cataract issue is getting so bad okay so the firstborn it means to be the be the begotten what else did you learn okay authority the, the issue the, why does he have authority because he is the firstborn, right? And when you're speaking about in the Christian family, he is the firstborn from the dead. What's interesting to me is that he, in Philippians, it talks about him taking off uh, his, he, um, that he laid aside his deity, not that he was gone, not that it was removed, it was totally present there, but laying it aside, meaning he, he, deliberately said, I will set this aside of my own free will as I walk in this human flesh, because in the flesh, it's necessary for the Savior to do what? To physically die, right? And he says of, of himself, Jesus therefore said, follow in my example. First Peter 2.20, what did you learn there? I would write all this up here, but we don't have room. <laughs> okay, say it again. Endurance pleases God. That's exactly right. 
Well, exactly. So we are to follow Jesus. Jesus suffered, right? Jesus suffered, or Jesus even endured. We can put it that way. So you should endure. Follow his example. And that was in First uh, Peter 2, right? Okay. Um, how are we able to do that? Philippians 4.13, we all know this one, right? I can do all things, right? Yeah, so Jesus is going to strengthen you. If you think that you can't do it, just know this. He did it. He left us an example. He's shown us that it's possible because he took on flesh and he did it. It, is, it isn't like he took on flesh and yet he was uh, not fully man. He was fully man. So he felt all the pain, all the suffering, all the ailments, all the issues of life. He, he experienced them. And through that experience, God says he perfected the son, right? And we can follow his example because he was fully man. We are fully man, obviously. We can do it because Jesus did it. And he did it to leave us as an example, right? Um, Matthew 10, also in Hebrews 12. I don't know if those are in there or not, but one of those says, consider him right, who endured such opposition from sinful men. I think that's the Hebrews 12 one. So that we will not grow weary and lose heart. So Jesus will strengthen you. And the one thing you need to do basically is set your eyes on Jesus. Consider him. What he did. And walk in it yourself. Be willing to walk in it. Make up your mind ahead of time to walk in it. Hebrews 2, I'm not sure which verses, but I put three on my chart. So it's somewhere in that arena, right? Count the cost ahead of time. And then endure it. That's in Luke 14, 25 to 35. Is that the one I read? I'm not sure. No, I don't think it is, is it? I think it did Matthew. Somebody look that one up. Luke 14. And I want you to read it for us. 25 to 35. It's 10 verses. Uh, yes, Luke 14, starting in 25, and you'll read the, for 10 verses through 35. Now great multitudes were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not bat his own, and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife and children, and brothers and sisters, <clears throat> yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not 
first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a not a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and take counsel whether he is strong enough um, with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks uh, terms of peace. So therefore, no one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possession. Therefore, salt is good, but if even salt has become tasteless, what will it be seasoned? It is unless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Wow. Here, he who has ears. Did you have that one yourself? Or is is oh my goodness he who has ears to hear let him hear that sounds familiar i think it should fit right into revelation that's that's awesome thank you so again that just kind of bookends everything that we've looked at this point because you start there and you talk and it's in a different passage and there are actually several accounts where Jesus calls people to count the cost. And if you understand the subject of covenant itself, you understand it's accounting of the cost. You are putting on the identity of your covenant partner and you're willing to lay your life down for them if need be. This is what the, the covenant relationship is all about. This is what Smyrna is really being called to. You're in covenant with God. You need to understand that there may be a calling that takes you possibly, as it did Polycarp, as it did John, as it did all the apostles, as it did many of those 50,000 Armenian Christians in, in Turkey who were massacred, as it did the Jews in the Holocaust who were not really living, but just simply by their identity and their name, that took them to a place where they were to die for their their name the one the name that they bear so you and i need to understand that there may be a time that we're called to it but this is what's interesting it says god knows god knows he's aware you're not in this alone he says in luke 12 12 what Yes. And he literally says that God is with you because he is with you. So what you can know is this, that first of all, God knows, God knows what's going on. He knows your situation. He knows the trials. He's telling you, this is who I am. And God knows. So again, the sovereignty of God, but also the omniscience of God. You are, you're not serving a wimpy God who goes to sleep on the job right? He's not a God that's housed in temples made by human hands. He is a God of the universe who is omnipotent, all-powerful, and he's present within you. He dwells within you. When you have become a believer, his Holy Spirit lives within you, and you know that he knows because he is present with you every moment, and that he is telling you, you are not alone. He is with you. And, the, and then the last statement he gives you then is, be faithful. God is faithful, 
right? In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, God is faithful. He will not allow you to what? To be tempted beyond that which you are able. So what do you know then about that? What does that mean to you? He's not going to. Have you ever felt like he did? But did you come through on the other side? So guess what that tells you? It wasn't your limit. Here's the thing. God does not push so far that he's going, if you're truly his, he will not be able to push you too far because he will give you the strength to be able to endure in it. And he, and he knows what's best for you. Think about people who um, have been persecuted in one area and then the next bigger trial comes along and now they say, oh, remember David with Sam's, the story of Samuel or, or Samson and Goliath? No, uh, David and Goliath. Do you remember the storyline? And the uh, King Saul tried to put his armor on him and he ended up in the end shredding it and saying, listen, I remember when God was with me and I killed the bear and when he was with me and I killed the lion. And then he says, I will kill this infidel or whatever he called him, right? And so then he went on, but he, what he recalled was that God had been with him previously and the success that God had given him. You and I can know this, God will prepare you little by little. And if you get to a place that you really do think that you're going to break, if it's true, God will take you out. He will either give you a way of escape by physical means, or he will give you an escape by taking you home. But he will not leave you and allow you to go beyond your limit. You can trust that about God. You, uh, God is faithful, okay? All right, now, how far are we into our time? We got five minutes. We, yeah, we don't have a lot of time. One of the things, we can talk about why enduring and suffering, but really one of the things I think is more important for us to cover in class time is that subject that we looked at in Luke 16 about death and Hades. Did you all draw pictures of that? Because that was really good. And I don't have time to teach the whole thing. I actually have a lesson in those who have been with me a while. I have a full lesson that takes you through everything from before the cross. When Jesus is on the cross and he says to the, to the um, repentant thief, you shall be with me today, where? In paradise. Well, what do you know did not happen to that man? Where did he not go that day that he died? He didn't go into heaven because who had not entered into heaven yet? Jesus. Jesus. So where did he go? To a place called paradise. What, what does that line up with, with what we looked at in, in this Luke 16? What is paradise also called? The bosom of Abraham. So although I'm not going to be able to do this well, uh, this was a place that it was called Hades. And if you looked up, were there any other titles that that could also be called besides Hades? Sheol. Very good. You guys did good. So Hades or Sheol. And we had two parts, right? The bosom of Abraham. And then there was the place called a place of torment, right? One was uh, Lazarus. I can't remember how to spell his name there. Lazarus and then the rich man. We don't get a name. 
thank goodness. He's happy that we didn't do that. Now, what what was what did you learn about what's going on here in this place called Hades or Sheol? It is separated by a great chasm, right? And concerning that chasm, when when the rich man wanted Lazarus to come and just touch his tongue with water to cool him, right? What did um, Abraham tell Laz uh, the rich man? No one can pass. No one can pass. Even if they wanted to. That's right. They cannot pass one to the other because of this great chasm. Now, one of the things I did learn when I did a... Um, Genesis study, and when I looked at this more carefully, did you notice that it says about the rich man that he lifted his eyes to speak? So, yeah, so the reality is it's like this. This is the place of torment. There's a chasm between the two that no one can pass. And then you've got the bosom of Abraham And then above this, to some measure, we don't know what, is Earth. Now you have the planet Earth up here, right? I thought that was interesting because once I thought it through a little bit more carefully, I remember, oh, yeah, well, he lifted his eyes. Well, if he lifts his eyes, so where is, this, where, where is this place of torment then? It's in the belly of the Earth. And you guys keep that in mind. I'm not going to go into it now because we don't have time. But when we get into Revelation study, there's going to be a place where, where it's going to, well, we actually did look at the verse. It says, and the sea gave up its dead, right? And death and Hades gave up its dead. We didn't look on any further, but what happened to the earth was it was destroyed. So it's in the earth that these places are located. In the earth, in the belly of the earth, because also when Jesus died, where does it say that he went? He descended to the belly of the earth. He, also, there was a prophetic utterance about Jesus. He, the Son of Man shall be how many days? Three days and three nights. Where? In the belly of the earth. So, yeah. So here we have the cross and our two eyes. And Jesus say, says to Today, whoops, I'm going to put it up here. Today you, yeah, I did go too far. Oh, I'm glad you caught that. Uh, today you shall be with me in paradise. So I just, I'm just getting you started on this so you can play around with this more and, and come up with more things. But what interestingly is if you make a list on this side, the, the bosom of Abraham, you know there's water, right, because of he wants him to tip his finger in water for him. And it's also called what in verse 25? A place of comfort. So it's a place of comfort. But on the other side with the rich man, how is that place referred to in 25? He's in agony. What else? He's thirsty. He's cried for water. Oh, yeah. 
He's, uh, he's in flames, it says, in 24. Um, and he also cried, yeah, torment. And also he cried for mercy. Isn't that interesting? Now listen to me. Oh, yes, go ahead. I Wow. So if you don't think it's true, argue with Jesus. The word is used 10 times in the New Testament, and it's every time used by Jesus. So Jesus is saying to you, this is the place called Hades. There are two times up to 10 that it did, but it, it's literally oh. the one uses the Hebrew word, and then it uses the word Sheba. Okay. Right. Always. Yeah, I love it when Jesus validates a place for us so that we can talk about it. But what I was going to say, okay, if this is all we did today, have you been equipped to go out and evangelize? You can literally take somebody to Luke 16 and in a matter of minutes. You can draw this picture on your kitchen table on a piece of scrap paper, just like I did here. I've got, I've got mine. It's just super, super simple. It's hardly anything. And it's not totally accurate. It's not totally fulfilled. But if you're just having a conversation with someone and say, read what it says, let's make a list. Let's draw this out. That's one of your inductive skills that you're honing in on. But I can tell you this, when you visualize something like this with people and you talk about the reality and that this is Jesus speaking it. Now, obviously, if you don't believe in Jesus, maybe this wouldn't be as effective. But if you've got a person who's at least heading in that direction a little bit to say, look, this is what Jesus says about this place called hell. If you're delaying saying yes to God and bowing your knee, this is what you need to be aware of that is your destiny. Well, no, it's not the final, but it is for right now. Right, but later we're going to learn that in, in Revelation there's hell, which this is not, by the way. Although there are some commentaries that still want to call this hell, it's not. Hell is another place, it's totally separate. This is going to be cast into hell by God at the end of the age, right? We learned that so far. So when we start timelining and listing all these things later, we're going to be doing these humongous timelines that'll take three boards to do, right? Uh, I'll probably begin to put a lot of it on poster boards and mounting it so that we got to start. <laughs> so I don't have to do everything all over again every week. But this particular message right here in relationship to this and what we talked about concerning people like Polycarp or even John who was dipped in, in boiling oil according to tradition before he went out to the island of Patmos. But he would not deny his faith. Polycarp said, I will not deny my faith. The apostles, all of them, martyred for their faith. We have a whole book of them. This, uh, The Fox's Book of Martyrs. I don't know what I did with it here. For those who are interested, this is a very good book. It's called Fox's Book of Martyrs. And it's, it's just loaded. I haven't even touched on all of it. But that one and this one called Smyrna, 1922. This one is a little more difficult to get your hands on because, huh? It's out of print, right? And, well, and they, they did that because the Turks shut it down. They're trying to annihilate. You know where I got this one? The library at Izmir was 
removing these things because our our Turkish base commander was, you know, basically they're trying to undo history and hide it all. So he he told them you cannot have this book in there for I do not know what reason, because as you guys know, I don't read and I never go to the library, but somebody got this book for me and brought it to me and said, Katie, they're getting rid of this book. Do you want to have it? I said, oh, okay. Well, it's about Smyrna. It's 1922. It's history. At that time, I was doing seven churches. I was in the middle of studying it. God, talk about God handing me some ammunition. Anyway, but th that's how I got this. But this is really good. I do know you can go online and get excerpts about the book and such if you just Google it. Yeah, it's a, you're right, Wikipedia. Exactly. Very good. You've done a bunch of research back there. Oh, well, golly. That's awesome. I love it. That's super. Uh, yes. All right. And, and I just didn't want to go that far, but yes, that's right. This as a, when I do it, um, when I'm teaching in the book of um, Luke, I actually take you through the whole thing and I show you the cross prior to the cross. This is the place where everyone went. Now, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, he's allowed us access. So we, now we no longer go to this place called Abraham's bosom. The Christian, where do we go? Absent from the body, present with the Lord. And, and he kept set the kids. Right. You are remembering very well. That's exactly right. Okay, I'm sorry. You guys, quiet. I can't hear her. Say it again. Right, three days. Um, not at first. He did it at the day of Pentecost. Because when he set them free, Ephesians 4, 6 or 8, it says, and he set a, 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 a host of captives free. And he gave gifts to men. So it's the day that the falling of the Holy Spirit. That's at Jesus's resurrection. That's the morning of his resurrection. Yes. But yeah, they were. Yeah. Yeah. So Jesus resurrected as the first fruits and then uh, some of the others as the, the chosen who uh, resurrected as a sign. And then um, later we will do this and timeline more in detail for you. So don't don't panic. But it's too, as you can see, it's just too much to cover in an hour, you know, hour and a half. That's all I have. Even that, I feel like I run you guys ragged and make you tired of listening to me. But uh, this one, it shows uh, that they're in uh, uh, Abraham's bosom, right? They are set free at Pentecost, but there's all this time in between. Because really, one of the other things is, remember, when Jesus first resurrects, he doesn't take the host with him because when he resurrects, he presents himself to all those witnesses. And one of the first ones is Mary. What did he say to Mary? Don't touch me for what? I have not yet ascended to the Father. So he had to ascend to the Father with his own blood and do the propitiation at the altar. And then he came back that very day and presented himself to these various people that are recorded in Acts. But 
he then he presented himself alive for 40 days right then on pentecost he he rises and when he does then he takes those who are in the bosom of abraham with him so now this bosom of abraham is empty but what still remains the place of torment and that is the place where the dead in faith the people who have no faith in Christ are now still waiting and they are waiting for that great white throne judgment day and then they will be cast into eternal hell and if you thought it couldn't get worse <laughs> right it will right they're just meaning the physical flesh is gone which is why when you read first corinthians 15 you, it talks about the dead you have to add that word body after it every time or you're going to get tricked up but it's the dead body right so when the physical body is dead then there's going to be a day of resurrection for the physical body because our spirits are already with the lord yeah all right girls and boys thank you so much it was a lovely week thank you